So from the start, I want to be clear about my goal for the sermon. Uh, I want every believer in this room, including myself, to be more committed to the mission that God has given us as a result of hearing His Word today. So we use the word mission here specifically, singular, instead of plural. I'm using that intentionally because I believe that we really only have one mission as believers, which is to bring glory to God by making disciples of all nations. It is the mission of every believer. And I want us all to be more committed to that mission today, having heard His Word. So your expectation when you have a missionary speaker speak is that he's going to speak on missions and give a mission sermon. But I would really prefer that you walk away not thinking of this as a mission sermon, but be thinking of this as a Christian sermon that really has to do with all of our mission. That is, don't assign missions or the mission to a corner of the church or a department of the church or a committee of the church or a Sunday school group that really thinks about foreign lands. Assign the mission to Every person in this room, the Lord has assigned it to every person in this room, and that's what we're to do, glorify Him by making disciples of all nations. So this sermon is not necessarily a mission sermon, really, ultimately, every sermon is a mission sermon in that respect. So I want us all to be more committed to that mission that we all have today as a result of hearing God's Word. So this is an ambitious goal. What could I say this morning that would motivate people to give their lives even for the sake of Christ in the world? What could I say that would cause them to sacrifice possessions that they hold dear? What could I say that would cause them to let go of some comfort so that they might be more fully engaged in the mission? What could I say that could cause all of us to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to praying, giving, and going for the sake of the mission that we've been given to by Christ? So what I could do as a missionary is I could give statistics such as the number of unreached people in the world or the number of people without the Bible in their own language. These facts are really necessary and they are helpful to us. But I would say they're not enough to motivate us to let go of the things that we prize the most. They're not enough in and of themselves to cause us really to let go of our own lives. To be involved at the level that the Scriptures are calling us to. To motivate you and I to pray, give, go, and stay in the midst of obstacles, fears, threats, and loss. In fact, I think some of the statistics could even be demotivating to you this morning because the task can really seem overwhelming. When you think about it, how could you or I make any significant contribution to such a large task? Numbers are staggering. Two billion unreached people. Two billion. One and a half billion people without the full Bible in their first language, etc. So the challenges to reaching the unreached peoples are huge. David Platt has said unreached peoples are unreached for a reason. They're hard, difficult, and dangerous to reach. All the easy ones are taken. So what truth is big enough to overcome these obstacles and affect this kind of dramatic change in our lives. The only thing that I believe that's big enough is a vision of the greatness of our God. It's actually a vision of the greatness of our God that would compel us 
to embrace the mission at all costs. John Piper was once asked, how can a pastor motivate his people to be involved in the global mission? And he answered, take your people to the Bible and show them a big God. So that's my intention today is to take us to the Bible and show you a big God from the Bible with the hope that we would all be more committed to the mission that we've been given. And I think this is the only thing that's sufficient. You and I will be willing to give our lives to the mission if we believe that the God of the mission is greater and more worthy than ourselves and that He can do even the impossible. So that's what I want this morning, is all of us to get a glimpse of the greatness of the missionary God that we serve. So we're going to see the involvement of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this mission through various books, uh, passages in the book of Acts. So I heard this morning that Gary worked through the book of Acts in Sunday school this morning, so I'm going to do the same kind of thing. I just want to say if there's any disagreement, go with Gary on this. He's probably right, I'm probably wrong. But I want you to see, first of all, the the involvement of the Father, sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. The Father is sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. Secondly, the ascended Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. And third, the Holy Spirit is empowering and transforming persons to fulfill the mission. We have a missionary God, and I want you to see that today. So we're going to start with the, the Father fulfilling sovereignly the mission. Although many people often approach the book of Acts by focusing primarily on the human participants, such as Peter or the, and the apostles, Paul, Stephen, etc., the primary focus of the book is actually on God. God is the main character in the book of Acts. Luke highlights the sovereignty of God in history through his use of key terms in the book, the way in which he describes God's involvement in Israel's history and the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of the story is about God. We're going to start with a key term. One key term that he uses among others in the book to show that the Father is fulfilling sovereignly the mission that He has given to to believers. God is fulfilling the mission. So the key term, day, shows this. Acts chapter 1, verse 16, for example. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The word they there in Greek really means some sort of divine necessity. It had to happen. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled because it's according to God's plan. This word they, which indicates divine necessity, occurs 40 times in the book of Luke and Acts. Twice as many times in all of Paul's letters and more than anywhere else in the New Testament. Because Luke is saying, it is necessary that all these things that fulfill the mission, they must be accomplished. Notice Acts chapter 17 verse 3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. The suffering and death of Jesus was not an accident or a surprise to God. It was part of His sovereign plan to fulfill the mission. And the many occurrences of this term in the book of Acts indicate that God's plan will be fulfilled and nothing is going to stop it. Therefore, you and I can have confidence that the Father will accomplish the mission because it's according to His plan. He will redeem all the peoples of the nations. 
That's why we read in Revelation this picture of the tribes and tongues and every nation around the throne worshiping God. It's a future picture of what will necessarily take place. And it will happen because God the Father is sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. But not only these special terms in the book of Acts, but also how we see the Father working through the history of Israel. His sovereign plan is indicated in speeches that take place, like the speech of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, or the speech of Paul in Acts chapter 13. They recount the history of Israel to show God sovereignly acting to accomplish His purpose. Stephen's speech, he summarizes Israel's history. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 46. In that speech, the term God, the name God, is mentioned 16 times. Because God is the subject, He's the protagonist of the narrative. God is the one who is determining the history. It's not simply a history lesson of what happened. But it's a story of God acting to determine the history of Israel. Notice what all Stephen says in this one speech about God acting in the mission. Stephen says that God appeared to, spoke to, gave promises to, and sent Abraham. He was with, rescued, and gave wisdom to Joseph. He fulfilled his promise to Abraham in rescuing the people of Israel. He appeared to, sent, and used Moses to deliver the people of Israel. He directed Moses concerning the construction of the tabernacle, drove out the nations before Israel, and he was favorable to Acts. God is directing the history of Israel. Throughout this narrative, Stephen says God's messengers are rejected. Joseph is rejected, Acts chapter 7, verse 9. Moses is rejected, chapter 7, verse 25, 35, and 39. But despite this rejection, Stephen is saying God accomplished His purposes. God is the main character, and He is fulfilling the plan that He has. Stephen's point is although his audience is following the same pattern of rejection, they're rejecting God's messengers, including Jesus, God's plan will not fail. It has never failed in the past, and it will never fail in the future. We know that the Father will direct the future because He has directed the past. You know, that's the point of so many stories that you read in the Old Testament. It is to see how God acted in the past so that you know His character, and then you know this is how He will act in the future. It is to give you confidence that He, in fact, is directing the affairs of humankind. God's purposes will not be thwarted. He is sovereign in Israel's history, and He is sovereign in world history. Kingdoms come and go, rulers rise and fall, but God's mission will be fulfilled. There is no question about that from the Scripture's perspective. He is directing history. You and I can know that He will accomplish the mission even if you face rejection. Stephen's testimony was not in vain. Even though he died giving the testimony, it was not in vain. And if the mission requires your life or my life, it will not be in vain. Because God will use it to accomplish His purpose, His mission in history. 62 years ago, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian were speared to death in Ecuador. You, many of you know that story. Just beside Bolivia, actually. They were trying to reach the Indians for the some indigenous people there for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Steve Saint wrote about his father's death. As the killers described their recollections, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the beach killing took place at all. 
It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. I want you to think about this. The son of the missionary was speared to death on the island, on the beach rather, and he says, I cannot explain their, their deaths apart from divine intervention. It's an astounding statement, really. This is the son of a man who's, uh, it's, a, it's a man rather, whose father was brutally murdered. And he's saying that his dad's death was not a random occurrence. It was part of God's plan to accomplish the mission. God is sovereignly acting. Therefore, the death of missionaries or the death of anyone for the sake of his mission is not in vain because God is using it to fulfill the mission that he has given. Now notice the sovereign plan of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection shows that the Father himself is sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 says this, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even though wicked men carried out the crucifixion of Jesus, God carried out His purpose to bring about redemption. The death of His Son did not hinder the plan of God. It fulfilled God's plan. Christ died for sinners and bore the wrath of God for them. And then God raised Him from the dead. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held for it, from it. God's plan cannot be stopped. The resurrection of Jesus is evidence to you and me that God's plan cannot fail. He has already defeated sin, Satan, and death in the death and resurrection of Christ. The death of Jesus by the hands of wicked man, men was the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. And the resurrection was the fulfillment of God's plan to raise Jesus from the dead, to overcome all real enemies. Therefore, you and I have no real enemies to fear. He has defeated all of them. You and I can proclaim the gospel even in the face of suffering and rejection because you know He will be victorious. God the Father was accomplishing His sovereign plan through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And His plan is moving forward. And it will be fulfilled. So let's see now the role of the Son of God. The Father is sovereignly fulfilling the plan. What is the Son doing with regard to the mission? The ascended Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. Right now, He is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. Notice the introduction to the book of Acts shows us that the Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. I want to talk a little bit briefly here about the title of the book of Acts. The traditional title of the book is Acts of the Apostles. And it's likely that this name, this title, was given sometime during the second century to this book. And you probably know that the titles of the books are not inspired. They came later in many cases. So although some of the apostles, especially Peter and Paul, are very prominent in the book, the title of the Acts of the Apostles doesn't really accurately reflect the message of the book. After Acts 1, only two of the original twelve apostles are mentioned again, Peter and John. The rest are not even mentioned. 
Some have suggested that the Spirit, that the book should be entitled Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is very important in Acts, as we'll see even later on in this sermon. But I would say that it still fails to reflect accurately Luke's emphasis in the book. I think a more accurate title can be derived from the opening verse. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as a first volume, and now he's written the book of Acts as a second volume. And the introduction to the second volume says, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What is the implication about this second volume? That this is what Jesus continues to do and teach. Jesus is ascending to heaven in the first chapter, but the book is about what the Lord Jesus continues to do and teach. It's the continuation of of the fulfillment of God's saving promises through the risen risen Jesus. So I think a more apt title for the book would be the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. I want you to see this further from the book. I want you to see it from the book itself and then tell something of its significance with regard to the subject of the mission. So Acts 1 introduces the book of Acts with a focus on the day of the ascension of Jesus. The day when He ascends. In fact, this chapter is framed with references to His ascension. Notice the repetition of the phrase, until the day He was taken up, in the beginning of chapter 1 and at the end of chapter 1. So chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we'll start in verse 2. It says, until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. Now notice the end of this same chapter. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and among us, beginning with from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from uh, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the chapter, the very first chapter of the book is framed with references to Jesus being taken up. Now notice what happens in between this frame, these bookends. There's another reference to Jesus' ascension. In verses 10 and 11. And I want you to notice here that the word heaven is repeated four times in the text. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Four times heaven's mentioned and Jesus being taken up again. So the chapter is about Jesus take, being taken up and the fact that He is now in heaven. The focus on this in this first chapter is not that Jesus is now absent and that the apostles must carry on the work without Him. Rather, the focus is that Jesus now rules from heaven. That He has ascended and He is in heaven now reigning. Notice the evidence of this, Acts chapter 1, verses 24 through 26. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the believers are choosing two men that meet the qualifications to be a replacement apostle for Judas. And they pray to the Lord who knows the hearts of all before they cast lots. So you may be thinking they're praying to the Father here. But the word Lord in this chapter clearly refers to Jesus the Son. Verse 2 mentions that the original apostles were were 
chosen by Jesus. And here's a choosing of apostles. Second, the entire chapter is about Jesus and His ascension. And finally, I would say, the immediately preceding reference to the Lord Jesus in verse 21 is to the Lord Jesus. And they're praying, You, Lord. They're asking the Lord who chose the original twelve disciples to choose a replacement disciple now. He's ruling from heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 21 says, I'll read it for you since I don't think I have it. One of the men who have accompanied with us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Reference to the Lord Jesus here. The ascended Jesus has such authority that he may be prayed to and that he is continuing to direct affairs from heaven. Jesus is still ruling over his people, choosing which disciple will join the other eleven that he had previously chosen during his life on earth and controlling the outcome of the lot to bring about the appointment. The point of this chapter is to say Jesus is alive and well, he has ascended to heaven and he is directing affairs. He has not left the apostles to themselves to carry out the work. This is what Jesus continues to do. The first volume was about what he began to do and teach. This volume is what he continues to do from heaven. Now notice chapter 2. And how it describes Jesus ascending the Spirit of God. Chapter 1 mentions the day He was taken up. Chapter 2 mentions the day of Pentecost. There are two days at the beginning of the book of Acts. And these two important days reveal that Jesus is now reigning in heaven to fulfill the mission. Chapter 1 emphasizes that Jesus ascended into heaven. And chapter 2 mentions a sound coming from heaven. Chapter 2, verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the, the entire house where they were sitting. What's the point of the sound from heaven? Who is in heaven now? Jesus is in heaven. He has ascended to heaven. It's mentioned that He's in heaven four times and now there's a sound from heaven telling us that Jesus is continuing to act and is behind the events of Pentecost 2. You may not see Him in front of you. You may have seen, watched Him ascend into the skies. But He is still directing affairs. In fact, there is a sound that comes that accompanies His action. Sound from heaven tells us Jesus is acting from heaven. Chapter 2, verses 32 and 33 shows us that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is evidence of the reign of the risen Lord Jesus. Notice verse 32. Jesus this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He who, the Lord Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is acting even though He has ascended to heaven. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, the position of power and authority, Jesus sends forth the Holy Spirit, God's enabling presence for his people. So the first two chapters of Act, Acts narrate two days. The day in which Jesus ascended and the day of Pentecost when Jesus poured out the Spirit among the people. They are the key introductory chapters for the rest of the book of Acts. And they're designed to show you and I that everything else that will take book, place in the book of Acts is according to the reign and rule of the ascended Lord Jesus who is continuing to act. That's the point of the introduction. He directs affairs for the rest of the events of the book and in this period of the kingdom of God. 
among other things, the risen Jesus is the one who adds people to the church. Notice Acts chapter 2. Sorry if the verse references in Spanish. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, you may think the title, Lord, refers to the Father. But here, it refers to Jesus. Throughout the chapter, Jesus is referred to as the Lord Jesus. Lord and Christ, who is adding believers to the church. He's in heaven right now. And He's directing affairs of the church. He's adding people. Church is growing in the world because the risen Jesus is adding to its number. According to the sovereign plan of God, Jesus is right now adding people from every nation, tribe, and language. This is an amazing thing. You and I ought to marvel at this. When someone comes to know the Lord, you and I can be confident that it is the Lord Jesus who is adding them to the body. He is there now. Working. Acts chapter 5, verse 32 states that He has been exalted to the right hand of God in order to give repentance and uh, forgiveness of sins to Israel. Acts chapter 16, Lydia pays attention to Paul's message and becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus opened her heart. Notice verse 14. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said, of, said by Paul. From this verse and others, it's clear that the Lord Jesus is responsible for the results. He opens Lydia's heart's heart, rather. Also, not only is he adding to the church to fulfill the mission, the ascended Lord Jesus is overcoming the greatest threat against the mission to fulfill it. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul is described as ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women committed, committed that, uh, and committing them to prison. Paul's an enemy of the church. Here he's called Saul, ravaging the church, taking, arresting them. He's a threat against the church. Chapter 9, verse 19 and 20, however, things have changed drastically. It says he's proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Here's the man who's going house to house, dragging men, off, men and women off, putting them in prison because they believe in the Lord Jesus. And then a chapter later, it says that he is proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. That's a significant change, isn't it? Dr drastic, dramatic. And this drastic change has occurred because he encountered the ascended Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and was converted. Jesus is acting from heaven to convert the greatest threat against him. Chapter 9, verse 3 through 6. As he went on his way, he just approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus is speaking from heaven. He's acting from heaven. He's converting the greatest threat against the mission because the ascended Lord Jesus is fulfilling the mission. And then notice chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Jesus will commission Paul now and describe his ministry. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen... He's talking to Ananias to tell him this. Go for a... Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer 
for the sake of my name. From Acts chapter 13 until the end of the book, Acts chapter 28, we read about the ministry of Paul. And all of it was directed by the Lord Jesus. Because Paul was Jesus' chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Even the suffering of Paul that we read about in the book is ordained by the ascended Lord Jesus. He is governing the affairs of humankind from heaven. He is accomplishing the mission. Acts chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord Jesus again speaks to Paul in a vision and encourages him not to be afraid because he is with Paul to accomplish the mission. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As a result of this encouragement, Paul keeps going in the face of opposition. Do you see how involved Jesus is in the mission? Paul was the greatest threat against the mission. Jesus converts him from heaven. Jesus gives him a commission that will serve him the rest of his life. Jesus ordains the suffering that Paul will endure for the rest of his life and ministry to accomplish the mission. And Jesus even appears to him in a vision to encourage him when he is afraid so that Paul will stay about the mission. Jesus is intimately involved in the mission. He, in fact, is accomplishing the mission from heaven. In the remainder of the book, Paul will be rescued from a plot to take his life by the Lord Jesus. He's sent to Caesar in the midst of false charges and corrupt rulers He's protected through a storm, shipwreck, and a snake bite. And he will arrive safely in Rome. And all of this protection is meant to be read in light of the promise of the Lord Jesus in this chapter. As you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Jesus is keeping his promise. He is fulfilling the mission by protecting Paul. The risen Lord Jesus is the one who cares for Paul so that he makes it to Rome to be his witness so that he might accomplish the mission. Jesus overcomes the greatest threat against the church by converting its greatest enemy into his messenger. He then gives him the ministry of proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles and ensures that he makes it safely to Rome to testify before Caesar. You, you and I can rest in the sovereign protection of God. He protected Paul so that he could preach in Rome. You and I need not fear. We need not be anxious. He will accomplish the mission. He's not left the mission to his followers. Sometimes it's said that way in mission speeches. It's up to us now. It's really up to him. And he's doing it. And he will do it. There are no real threats to his rule. He's accomplishing it through his followers. And he's overcoming threats and obstacles in amazing ways. And you can have confidence that he continues to reign from heaven as you engage in the mission. There are no real threats. He continues to rule according to his promise, adding to the church, overcoming threats and directing the mission and the results of the mission. He's not left this alone to complete the work. He reigns from heaven and continues to do the work through us. And so far from making us passive in the work, this truth should make us fearless and relentless in this mission. It should give us confidence in this work regardless of the opposition you and I might face. The task of missions is bigger than any one of us or even all of us put together. But the risen Lord Jesus is accomplishing it through His people. Finally, I want you to see the role 
of the Holy Spirit in this mission. Two main purposes are mentioned in Acts or alluded to in Acts for the coming of the Spirit. One is to empower and the other is to transform so that the mission will be accomplished. Notice first, the Holy Spirit is empowering believers to fulfill the mission. It's a clearly stated purpose for the coming of the Spirit. It's to empower people to speak for Him, to proclaim the Gospel, to proclaim His salvation. Notice Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what will be the result of that? You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. God sends His Spirit so they will be witnesses who verbally testify to the good news of the Lord. Acts chapter 2, for example, Peter is full of the Holy Spirit and he proclaims the fulfillment of the Scriptures and the purposes of God in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Peter urges people to follow Jesus, but it's the Spirit who's enabling Peter to speak so boldly. Peter, who had been really a coward before, is now boldly proclaiming the message of salvation because of the empowerment of the Spirit. And this same link between the enablement of the Spirit and the ability to speak or proclaim the Gospel is mentioned throughout Acts. Notice chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And the key link I want you to see is Peter is filled with the Spirit and he speaks Chapter 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit? They continued to speak the Word of God with all boldness. In fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God, the risen Lord Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to enable His people to be witnesses who boldly announce the Gospel. God the Holy Spirit will enable you to speak boldly the good news to those who have not heard in order to accomplish the mission. And you could think, I'm not brave enough or eloquent enough to evangelize others. But God, through the Holy Spirit, will enable you to do it. Your confidence is not in yourself, but in the Spirit who acts to empower His believers. The first purpose that's clearly illustrated in Acts for the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, is to enable believers to proclaim boldly. The second is to transform people to accomplish the mission. After the Lord Jesus sends the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and Peter, who is filled with the Spirit, speaks the Gospel, 3,000 people respond to Peter's message and are saved. Notice here it says 3,000 people were added. Later in this same chapter, notice the description of these people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayer and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This group that three, of 3,000 that was saved at the beginning of the chapter, the Spirit has become, come upon them, and this is the transformation we witness in their lives. They are giving to one another. They have all things in common. They are sacrificing. They are praying together. They are devoted to the Lord's work and to the Lord's Word. All of this is taking place because the Spirit has come upon them and He has transformed them. 
They express unity and devotion to one another through sharing food, possessions, and meeting needs. They are sacrificing all because the Spirit is transforming. No one is beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. If God transforms Paul through the Spirit, who's the enemy of the church, He can transform anyone. The mission is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. People must be born again, and this is simply impossible for us. But with the Spirit of God, all things are possible. This truth is very humbling. Because we could not save ourselves. We don't have that capacity. And we don't have the capacity to save anyone else. But it's also empowering to you and me in the mission. Because no matter how weak we feel, no matter how great the obstacles are before us, no matter how strong the rejection, we can know that the Spirit is able to give us the ability to boldly speak the good news. And He can transform lives to fulfill the mission. And when you proclaim the Gospel by the power of the Spirit, He will transform lives. The Holy Spirit is the enabling power of the mission. We don't carry out the mission by our own strength. We don't change people's minds by our own persuasion. He does the transforming work in order to accomplish the mission. You and I are not selling a product and hoping that people buy it. We're not attempting to trick people or manipulate them. We're relying on the work of the Holy Spirit. One of my tutors in Bolivia said when she found out that we were going to the jungle to do our work there, she said, what do you... I understand you're talking to other people who already believe in Jesus, but I don't understand how in the world are you going to convince people who don't know Him and reject Him outright? who have other gods, how are you going to convince them that Jesus is the way to salvation? She's not a believer. And the only answer to that question is the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The ascended Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning. He will work in their lives. The Father will accomplish His plan. It is this confidence in our great missionary God who is fulfilling the plan that enables us to go. Otherwise, it's simply impossible why would we move our family and consider going to a place where people are rejecting Christ, who, outright, who have outrightly different beliefs? It's certainly not in my confidence to persuade people to our side of things. It is that the Lord Himself is accomplishing the work. It is the belief that He is the one who's fulfilling the mission. It's the belief that He will overcome all threats by His power. It is the belief that the Spirit will empower us and transform others. Conclusion of this is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are accomplishing the mission. It's in fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God. The risen Lord Jesus restores the people of God by granting repentance, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then enables Jesus' people to be His witnesses who announce the fulfillment of God's plans in Jesus and speak with boldness in difficult settings. The Spirit transforms lives so that they are full of wisdom, faith, and joy and demonstrate genuine love for one another. This mission is God's mission and He is accomplishing it. He's doing it. Our God is sovereign. Our Lord Jesus is reigning and the, Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is working to accomplish the mission. So how does this impact your life? You and I, we might be tempted to say, if God is accomplishing the mission, 
then we don't need to do anything. But that's not biblical logic. Biblical logic is the opposite. It's our confidence that God is accomplishing the mission that frees us and emboldens us to do what He's calling us to do. Only those who believe in a big God will be willing to risk their lives. Only those who believe in a big God will be willing to persevere in the midst of suffering. Only those who believe in a big God will risk rejection and sacrifice for eternal reward. Apart from this confidence in a big God who is accomplishing the mission, you and I will play it safe. Stay comfortable and remain uninvolved. Paraphrase John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. If I did not believe in the sovereignty of God, I would have no more hope of success in preaching to men than in preaching to horses and cows. Believe in the sovereignty of God that He is accomplishing the mission so that you might have confidence to proclaim Him. Those who trust in a big God will be willing to give sacrificially, pray for God to work, and go to the hard places because they really have nothing to lose and everything to gain. This mission is not in jeopardy. Don't let anyone ever convince you of that. It will take place. It is taking place. The plan of the Father, the work of the risen Lord Jesus, and the empowering and transforming of the Spirit. The fulfillment is sure because it is God's mission. It is His plan. I simply want to close the sermon with these two promises from Scripture. Be encouraged this morning to be all in when it comes to missions, because God is fulfilling, fulfilling the mission. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Statement of certainty. Psalm chapter 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Let's pray. Father, we want to have